We are Squawking Dead, a podcast pulverizing episodes beyond the Walking Dead universe. I'm your host, David Cameo, and I'm joined by Sharon D.A.K. Blazy Gardner and Bridget, ko-fi.com slash punkybrewster. That's P-U-N-K-Y-B-R-U-I-S-E-T-E-R. And we're here with a very special guest, a director on Fear the Walking Dead, namely the episode you may have just seen, which is Fear the Walking Dead's ninth episode in its eighth and final season titled Sanctuary. Thanks for coming on, Phil. Thanks for having me. I saw on, on your Instagram that you posted that you started as the assistant editor and then you moved up to editor and now you've directed an episode. How long were you in each? Yeah, so I started in season one on the show, one of the few that kind of made it the whole run. As an assistant editor in season one, which was a six episode season, so I, I was technically only on episode four. It opened with Travis on a jog, I believe, on Perfect Day. I think that was Travis running. That's also, that feels like that's over a decade ago now. And then Almost. I came back for season two as an assistant editor. And by the end of that season, I co-edited episode 214. And then I actually left at the beginning of season three to edit on a CBS show that only lasted for one season called Pure Genius. That was like a near future medical tech procedural. But came back to do a swing, what we call a swing episode, where the schedule got so crazy that it sort of behooved them to bring in another team and take over an episode. So I ended up editing episode 307, where you know everything kind of falls at, uh, I believe we were on the ranch in that season, Yeah, ahead of kind of Mercedes running out. And there's some cool Alicia stuff in that episode. And you know we had like a kind of near scalping in that episode. Of... Um, Jake Otto. Yeah. And then I came back full-time season four when we had a little bit of a sort of regime change and have been there season four through now as an editor. Even after directing, came back and still edited one more at next week's episode. It's kind of a, a unicorn type of show to have it run as long as it did and to be able to move up the way that I did. And it's really just a testament to the the type of crew that the show has in front of and behind the camera. It's really very collaborative and supportive and kind of affords you those opportunities to take chances and improve yourself and, and earn those types of opportunities. One of the yeah. things I loved about the show in season four and five is that you guys did try different things, Al's cameras and stuff like that. And even in dreams, which I hated so much, <laughs> I, I still it. I still like that you tried something different. It just didn't vibe with me, but guilty admission, everybody knows this. I've not seen season one through three. I started watching in four and that's, I, I tried. You guys do try different things and take chances. Even if people don't always like it, at least you did it. Yeah. And that's made it fun to work on too, because we get to experiment a little bit and bring a lot to the table as an editor and a creator. Like I, I feel like I've gotten to really scratch that itch to be creative and to be a storyteller on my side, which is not always the case. Sometimes as an editor, you might feel like you're just kind of a pair of hands or you you know you happen to know the software that you're using and then people are dictating things to you but I, I feel like on this show especially I've gotten the opportunity to really you know have those conversations with our directors and with our producers and and, and try things out and experiment and especially when we're doing things stylistically a little bit different or changing it up episode to episode you get to exercise like a different part of your brain and it's like a new puzzle to try to put together so it's the case that on most shows or movies movies more particularly you get thrown a lot of input and direction on how things will need to be cut or 
basically what you're saying is that in a sense, you had your own creative input in the editor's booth. Basically, Yeah, I think that you get, it's a little of both. Television in particular is kind of a showrunner, writer, showrunner's medium. You're all sort of serving that general vision and you learn tastes and you learn preferences and you can kind of cater to that while still taking swings or still trying to diplomatically or, or politically steer things one way or the other. And then you're getting a mix of recurring directors or producing directors, in our case, Michael Satrazimus coming over from The Walking Dead. And he's really kind of spearheading what the visual language of the show is and, and, and sort of overseeing a lot of our guest directors and affording us that certain level of continuity in the production. But then guest directors come in and they're interpreting all of this information and the characters and the story and then trying to deliver and serve their masters, certainly, but also... In, try to uh, impose a little bit of their own perspective and point of view into the show as well. And then as an editor, I think that you are this line between the director and producer, and you are kind of trying to set the directors up for success in the eyes of the producers, while also trying to make the best version of an episode you can with the material that you get. This evolution from script through production, through post, I mean, there's sort of this kind of hokey adage that it gets rewritten three times or, or yeah. however many times, but it's it's really kind of true. And I think the best directors and the best producers really embrace that. This is what was shot. This is what we have. Like, what is the best version of this episode that we can make? And I do feel like that's sort of the rule on our show is like, let's continually try to improve it and continually try to make the best version with what we can, given even the production schedule is insane and, and short and the sort of the Herculean effort it takes to get some of these sets built, especially seasons six, seven, and eight, we started to lean into this a little bit more of like a pseudo anthology style where we're kind of doing more character focused episodes. We're going to new locations all the time. We're building new sets all the time. And there, that turnover is happening as we're prepping that episode. So as we're shooting one episode over the course of 10 days, they're prepping the next episode that's getting shot, which means they're finding these locations, they're building these sets, they're building props, they're casting that all in that 10, day, 10 working day period. So the fact that they can pull it off is, is sometimes kind of just a miracle into into and of itself. No small parts and all that. Yeah. Yeah. No. So the editor, we're really being conscientious of that too. It's just like, how, however we can ele elevate what we get and what they were able to pull off in the time that they were given. It's a kind of an interesting mix of storytelling and creative problem solving and being this kind of resident interpreter, digesting all these different styles and all these different choices that different directors are making and trying to translate that to the Fear of the Walking Dead language, I guess. It really seems like, Phil, that this show in particular gives so many opportunities to the people who work on the crew and, and the cast with you being able to go from assistant editor to editor to director and I believe other cast members as well. So can you speak to that a little? That seems like that's such a welcoming environment to be in. It is. Part of that, like I'm saying, is, you know, as an editor being encouraged to offer your creative input and insight. And I think that extends to the cast and to the other crew members who are all sort of storytellers in their own right and all filmmakers in their own right. And when they have that kind of inclination that they want to take on that challenge of directing an episode, there is a process in place in sort of securing that opportunity. And that involves shadowing Mikey on an episode. And you really get to be a fly on the wall through the whole process. Some of the cast and some of the on-set crew that have gotten a director, obviously part of that machine every day. So they, they know a little bit more kind of what's going into that. But 
it always, you know, comes down to really learning the prep process and how much of the episode is really made ahead of time, mm-hmm. which is usually the, like the unique experience. Everybody's encouraged to bring themselves in their everyday role on the show. And then I think the more you prove yourself there, that opportunity presents itself. And it started early, I mean, with Coleman directing early on, and I got to edit a couple episodes for Lenny. And even for them, it was kind of this unique challenge and unique experience that everybody wants to do it again after they get to get on the other side of it. I feel like there's a phrase, but it's like you you forget the trauma kind of scars over the experience. And then you're like, okay, let's, let's, I forgot how hard that was. Let's do it again. Uh, it's like kept having like, a, you know, having subsequent children. Uh, you know? yeah. Like why, why, but more. Yeah. <laughs> so as an editor, when you're editing for different directors, do you have different approaches or do you kind of approach them all the same? Generally the same. I mean, the people that I get really familiar with who either, if it's Mikey or if Heather Capiello is one that we've had come back and I've worked with her a ton. We have a great relationship and she's super collaborative and I recognized that we had a good dynamic early. And so even in subsequent episodes, I think our process starts earlier and earlier, even ahead of production, where we'll talk through the script a little bit and talk through some of the sequences that she's planning. And if I can think of anything that maybe she should shoot that maybe she's not considering, that really kind of helped me prepare for directing too, because I got to have those conversations with a director ahead of time. Usually we're just getting things and we're just figuring out like, okay, well, we didn't get this piece to the story. Like, how are we going to tell it in that circumstance? But otherwise, in general, we're getting the footage the next morning from the previous shoot day. The assistant editors are organizing it into scene bins and, and grouping clips for multiple cameras. And then we're just reviewing the footage. We kind of know the script really well at that point. We're looking at script notes from the script supervisor. And that's one way that the director's communicating with us, whether they circled certain takes that they liked or left us some notes in the script, or we can see what lines got omitted or changed on set. But really just it's watching as much as you can and kind of really knowing the scene. And we've sat in a few prep meetings and tone meetings, and we kind of know what the intentions are with the scenes and, and what they're going for. And yeah, and then just starting to sort of construct it. And it's really more like sculpting than anything. You, you know, Getting a first version of a scene really helps you kind of identify what you want to do and what you want to change. It's like writing, like it's good to have the bad version just out there so you can start to kind of see it take shape and know what you want to do, or how you want to address it. Whittle that down, basically. Yeah. So we're doing that the whole time they're shooting. So they're shooting for 10 days. We're trying to stay as close to production as possible, especially if we notice something that maybe they can pick up later. And then we get an additional three to four days after they've wrapped before we put out our editor's cut. And that's when we're doing a lot of refining and sort of stringing the scenes together and building those transitions and doing temp sound design and temp score. We have the whole score library for the whole run of the show. And so we're kind of informing at least this roadmap of where we see music going and how we want the sound design to be, especially when we're doing some of these different episodes where they're a little bit more impressionistic or we're trying stuff out and experimenting or we're doing some temp visual effects to try to sell an idea. That part of the process all is very similar and it's just trying to get the best out of it that you you can really. And then you can usually foresee like where the some of the, like, you know, okay, this is going to be the sequence that we spend most of the time working on. Because it has to have the impact. Yeah. And even, even if it's just because we got the most options for a huge sequence. So it's like, okay, well, this is so subjective that it could go any number of ways. You know, you can't successfully read minds all the time. Right. So you get to have that like creative input and have a little fun with that too. And then obviously sometimes it comes back. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, well. I mean, I think, I think what I've learned 
and what I think even prepared me for directing as far as editing goes is like you get this editor's cut out and then you know that somebody's going to come in and they're going to change things and and it's not like a personal attack to get like I think early on when you're new to editing and you put so much of effort into getting a cut out and then somebody comes in and gives you a list of all the things that are wrong with it. And then you sort of like, Oh, like, you know, like, you know, screw you. Like this is you know, like, uh, but then you learn, okay, they're just going to tell me what they want me to do. And I'll either agree or not agree with it. And if I don't agree with it, then you can sort of figure out, okay, well, why are they giving that note? Is there another, is there a third option that I can think of that sort of satisfies what they're trying to do, but I think is maybe a better way to do it, or maybe they are right. And maybe I overlooked something or, I missed a performance or they remember something from set and I wasn't there. So they, they're like, okay, well, that, this, they did this thing in this one take we have to find because that's what I want to build the scene around. But it's all kind of part of the fun. And then I like to just think about it. So it's just going to get better from there in an ideal world, which I, I often feel like it, it does on this show. We're just refining and, and you know, cutting time too, because sometimes we'll have right. an early cut and it might be 50 minutes, 55 minutes, over an hour. We've had that before. And we have to get it down at least in the 40 to 45 minute range to sort of satisfy AMC. AMC. So, <laughs> for commercials. How long does it usually take you to edit an episode? From shoot day one to an editor's cut's probably about 14 days. And then we work with the director for four days after that. Then we work with Ian and Andrew for another four days to a week before it goes to AMC. I'm not doing this math as I'm saying it out loud, so I apologize. <laughs> That's a month and change. Yeah, and then, and then you know, we'll do one or two passes with AMC depending on their feedback and the, the questions that they have for the episode. And then in some cases, it requires us to shoot pickups or sh we don't, often not reshoots, but it's usually just trying to find like a couple shots that maybe would help a particular story beat or something like that that we need to try to grab. And they'll do that if and when they can on set with subsequent episodes. You're in the editor's chair, but now you're in the director's chair. Because I know that the grass is greener, right? You can always criticize a director for not going a certain direction, and they can always criticize you, criticize you for not cutting it the way they want it. Let's say, I know that doesn't happen, but let's just use that extreme example. But were there some things that you weren't prepared for as a director? I mean, I know you're a filmmaker also. I mean, we're going to talk about Toad Boy, obviously. But were there some things, at least in the realm of network television, let's say, or cable television, that you weren't prepared for as a director? I think that you try to prepare for it, but really just how quickly you're losing time on set. Immediately when you start the day, you're already behind. And it's really incredible the speed with which this crew operates and the things that they were doing. And, and obviously within these episodes where we have dozens of background actors and heavy makeup and costuming and just turning a room to shoot in the opposite direction could be a half an hour to an hour just because you want to shoot and shoot the other way. And so if you didn't get what you wanted to get from that one side, like you're probably not going to get it at that point. Everybody tells you like, you're just going to have to start kind of marking stuff off your shot list and figuring out, okay, what, what are the essential pieces that I need? And you're like, okay, well, we can, this doesn't seem like it's that much. Like, I feel like we are going to be able to get it all. And then two hours in, you're like looking at the end of the day and you're like, well, what are we going to lose later? Because there's no way this is going to happen. And in specifically with my episode, sanctuary with the sort of collapse sequence and the like the, the building sort of deteriorating initially scheduled for just like half a day of shooting because it was not that long in the script there's like an anecdote where there was a script where it just said like paris falls i forget the name you know it's like an apocryphal story but it's like here's half a page sort of describing okay like 
the sanctuary is going to start collapsing and they're going to have to hide in the in the furnace. So you're like, okay, well, we need to build out the story and think through the sequence of visually, what are these beats going to be? And then so like, oh, we want to drop a giant metal box from the ceiling and we want to knock poles over and we want to have the furnace falling apart and we want to do all these things and still have some great walker moments and still have this character interactions and tell the story of our baddie for the episode and Marty coming around and shoot that all in five hours. It's like, um, well, <laughs> that's uh, probably, I mean, that one going into that day, I was like, there's no way that's happening. And we had sort of strategically scheduled some pieces for the back end of the day that I knew as an editor, if we didn't get them, those are probably some of the first things that are cut for time. Like these little sort of transitional pieces or like Dwight lurking in the sanctuary up top, getting him through some corridors and stuff like that, where it's like, it's a whole nother setup and a whole nother location within this facility that we're shooting in. If I can condense that backside. And then also, I mean, you're still, you're pitching the writers on it. You're pitching in Andrew on it. Like, okay, I, I think that it's going to be worth getting all of the stuff that we're getting for this. And if we don't get these couple pieces, I feel like we've still got this sequence or we've still got enough to introduce us to the location again, having to sort of kill your darlings right up top and then just strategizing for that, like the chess of the job. I mean, that was the biggest obstacle. And even just communicating with all the different departments and, and being able to anticipate questions ahead of time, that was a unique experience because you know when I'm editing, I have a really great assistant editor, Kaylee Hoffman, who ended up getting elevated to edit in the back half. She cut the episode before that right. SJ Munoz did, and she cut an upcoming episode. But she's the main person that I'm talking to on a day-to-day -day basis. And then eventually one-on-one -on -one with the director, and then eventually sort of one-on-one -on -one with Ian or Andrew. And I'm not fielding questions from every department and sort of playing traffic cop to hundreds of people on a set and being the sort of arbiter of our choices and what direction we're going and what we're doing. So that was also just sort of the biggest learning curve is, okay, like, these are the questions that these people are, are going to ask of me. If I can think those through ahead of time and even answer them before they're even asked or give them this kind of information that they need so they can go off and do their job, that's going to save time. And then in turn, I'm going to get to shoot more of what I want to shoot. So it's really getting kind of thrown into the deep end in that way. What was your favorite episode to edit? That's a really tough one to say. I'll give an answer and I know why, because... It was the first episode that I edited for Michael Satrazimus, and it was kind of really the first time that I felt like I locked into the style that they were aiming for in season four. And I know it's a particular favorite of your, yours. So it's uh, 405 still stands out to me as one of my favorite episodes. What we sort of did with 405 and then what we did with 505 with Al and sort of our cliffhanger episode and these really character-focused ones, I think the success of those episodes is what sort of spurred the shift over time because those episodes were as well-received as they were, and we got to really kind of tell a character arc in like a mini-movie sort of vibe. 615 stands out to me. That's where Teddy, that's where they launched them at the end. The, before, USS, like, the USS Pennsylvania. Yeah, that was a really fun one to work on and to cut. That was one that I did with Heather. Season 7, I had cut mostly Tatrazima's episodes somehow. And I did what I think effectively might have been the first two of season seven, like the Will mm -hmm. uh, Strand okay. episode and then the Grace episode follow-up. They aired in order. that They were not shot in order. But both of those were a ton of fun to, 
to work on just because it was the material was so different than anything we'd seen on the show. Yeah. Your daughter was the voice of the baby walker in 702, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah that baby that. in the suitcase was my RSV infant. <laughs> 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 well, she both she would mimic if I made walker sounds at her, she would mimic me and make them back. So I recorded that. And then she did have RSV and her breathing was just kind of that. Oh. And so I just recorded that and then it ended up staying in the episode. So it'll be a fun thing down. to show her when she's a little bit older. No. This is you, literally. <laughs> But she wasn't actually in the bag, right? No, I'm just, That's I'm just actually kidding. what I was referring to. No, kidding. no. Yeah, no. I was talking to Lenny. I was like, hey, do you want to, you want to see a picture of the baby that was in the suitcase? He's like, no, please, never. Don't show me. I don't want to, I don't want to know what, you know, he was already not his uh, favorite thing to do, I think. But he's done it's just uh, kill a, a, a baby uh, walker. That's our favorite kind. Oh, pass. <laughs> So to get like a little more episode specific to, to Sanctuary, Phil, you kind of had to tap into like a lot of pre-existing drama oh, yeah. and, and content from the flagship show, even like not even from the series. Yeah. So how did you get into that mindset to be able to really help direct to tap into those emotions? I really benefited. It maybe have been by design if I had to guess. I had edited episodes two and six when we first met June in season eight and Dwight and Sherry enter into that episode. And then in six with the passing of Finch and, mm. and their separation. So I felt pretty intimately familiar, at least with where they've been recently coming into this episode. It was a lot of kind of refreshing myself on some of the Walking Dead material. And we have a great team on the show of, of producers and, and producers assistants, including uh, Brittany Patterson, who really curated a list of kind of like essential episodes to watch to really dive in to Dwight's story in the sanctuary and, and the, his relationship to the facility and the saviors and Negan and, and Sherry as well. And that was distributed to the entire team of department heads so that everybody could be refamiliarize themselves with it. And we have a lot of crew that came f over from The Walking Dead, especially when we shifted to Savannah for shooting. And, sure. and so there were people that had knew every inch of the sanctuary and every inch of Dwight's room and knew what needed to be. There's a lot of the props, like the set deck. Some of those things were actually stored in a warehouse and they brought them in or, or you know, were, were trucked in. Even the windows in the main room were the original like glass that they had there. And, um, wow. and so every single person on the crew and, and all the department heads were keyed in on it. The writing on the wall had been there for this episode early on. So they, I think, had been doing a lot of the groundwork of where are we going to be able to pull this off? Where are we going to shoot this? We need to be able to have a space where we can put this footprint in because it's such a, you know, a huge space. So they had been thinking about that a lot ahead of time. And then coming in, it was just a Walking Dead Marathon to make sure that I was both just really confident in going back in there because it felt like it's, you know, it's this huge task. And, and there are certainly fans who feel a certain level of ownership over the show and an intimate knowledge of it that more than eclipses, I'm sure, mine. So it's making sure I'm That's doing us. a service. I'm doing a service to them. I'm not, I don't want to overlook things. I don't want to, and like, if there's other opportunities that we don't have to be referential to The Walking Dead or to our own show, where, how can we make this as rich as possible? And how can we find those things? It's like, what are the essential things that we need to see to sell Sanctuary, to trigger Dwight, 
I mean, trying to root it in character as much as possible. Like what, mm. you know, we want, right. we want everything to be meaningful to these characters and give them things to play off of so that the actors can immerse themselves in the moment. I think you all did an excellent job. This was, this was a great episode. I just want to say that the opening shot of Dwight reflected in the puddle I don't even remember like the next 20 minutes because all I could think about was how awesome that shot was. She couldn't wait to message me that I hadn't even seen the show. (laughs) Oh, that makes me so happy. I I don't think that I, it's like breaking anything, but there, I mean, this original script was longer and there, we saw a little bit more of his journey, but the whole point of it is just to kind of align you with him and get you feeling where Dwight is and to to really settle into that and, and sell the time. And I think Austin does such an amazing job conveying that and the weight of that and, and, and coming in so haggard and kind of disoriented that those were things that we ended up losing even before we started shooting because otherwise we would have had to shoot over the course of 14 or 15 days when we only get 10. Right. So yeah, we wanted to find a really cool way to still get into the episode and to sort of tease where we were with being back at their house. And that was just a fun dynamic way to get into that. And even get to play with some cool toys, like the lightning lighting setup that they use for that is massive and it sits high above the trees and they have different stations and it's all triggered by like a remote system and it flashes all around. So getting to experiment with that and just hanging out. That might've been one of the last things that we shot at night uh, on a night shoot when we were there. Not the last day, but it was like like the last setup of the night, I think. It was just fun to go off on that note. Because you mentioned how much went into this episode from set pieces that were brought in and people that had to backlog all this information that may or may not be brushed up on that era of The Walking Dead. Did you have a little bit more time to, well, A, prep, but B, film as well? Or was there a lot more prep that needed to go into this episode than normal? I think there was. And a lot of that was sort of figuring out locations and and are we going to be able to find this house? We weren't traveling to the Atlanta surrounding area to shoot any of the previously used locations. So like their house, for example, and the interior of that had been a set, I believe anyway, but I could be mistaken. But But the exterior of the house, we had to sort of find a house in rural surrounding Savannah that was close enough that we could really recreate that as a, a miracle that locations found the house that we found and that we were able to to really, I think, do that and pull that off. I think the benefit of knowing Ian and Andrew really well and working with them is that I also got an earlier draft of the script than I think sometimes the directors get just because I'm talking to them all the time anyway. And I told them that that was going to be to their detriment because then when we started official prep, because there's not really time or mental real estate to initiate any kind of real conversations with them while they're still in prep on other episodes and while they're in production on other episodes. This is a very tight schedule, and this is like when they can talk to you about the stuff that's going on in this episode. But having the script even just a, a hair early and getting to just sort of comb through it and go over it and over it, I came to them and I'm like, all right, well, you, know, you gave it to me early, so now get ready for the longest tone meeting of your, your lives <laughs> or like, let's, can we, let's like have a pre-tone where we can talk through stuff. Cause I thought through as much as I could think through ahead of time and pitched some things and thinking ahead, like I said, where, where are we going to have to lose things? Or if we have to sacrifice something for time for production schedule, I want to sacrifice these things ahead of these things, because I want to make sure we keep all of this really cool shit and all these set piece action sequences and, and moments 
And then when we were shooting it, I was like, damn, why did I make them keep all of these insane action sequences and stuff moments <laughs> and, and stuff? Because it's like, I, how am I supposed to pull off like this fence sequence? And when Dwight has the axe and Sherry has the gun and they're sort of back to back, some sort of like couples therapy exercise <laughs> that they're going through. And then still get the time to let these actors get into the moment and these like really heavily emotional scenes and, and sequences and, and let them find it. Right. So like I Stop got to, to that too. have a lot of influence. I, I feel like over what we did shoot and, and kind of recontextualize it ahead of time, which are all things that I feel like I'm doing in post anyway, but getting to do it ahead of time now. But then I really, yeah, there were times where I was like, God damn it, Phil. You, like, you had to, like, you kept all this <laughs> insane shit, and now you have to, like, figure out how you're going to get it all done. But we, we did, and I can't think of anything that we didn't get to shoot that I'm, like, even still kicking myself about. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff that you were talking about with Dwight and getting to feel the weight of his sadness, essentially, what I liked about the episode the most, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it more tonight, to, tomorrow night, is that apparently you lost some of that in the process, but what I liked about this episode is that that weight gets passed to each character as we yeah. go, crescendoing with Jayla Walton's performance as Dove slash Odessa, which is like, okay, you're sad, you're sad, you're sad, you don't think you can do it. So how am I supposed to? And so there's yeah. it, this really cool build that I think, I mean, I, I would credit to you, obviously, for pulling that yeah, out of the, the actors. It's kind of staying out of the way for the most part, or, or being really cruel and like, hey, please, I know that you just like kind of lost yourself in that moment and it was super heartbreaking and traumatic to, uh -huh. to live those emotions. Let's do it again four more times and we're, we're gonna push in. And, but they're also so gracious and so game and they were very receptive. I don't know often in my day job and not communicating directly with the actors, but a lot of what the editor is doing is just trying to make the actors look as good as possible and really find truthful, honest performances. And I mean, I'm staring at their faces and their eyes and these idiosyncratic twitches and, and all this stuff and so conscientious of it. And all I want is to try to make it as honest and real as I can. And so how do I convey that to them without coming off as like a creep or like, you know, like a weird, like, it's like, I'm, I'm staring at your face every day. I want, it, I want the best for you. You're um, literally saying what I think every single day as I edit these episodes. A, like not coming off as a creep for cutting this out or cutting that out. Or can you say um less? That sort yeah. of thing. It's just a constant yeah. thing that goes in my uh, head. It's like, oh, if you just didn't blink Sorry. in that moment, it'd be great. But, it, you know. I feel like Dave and Phil could just like have a whole thing to themselves like bridget you and i could just go get a drink or something and yeah, they can just, I could dish they can about just them. discuss you could tell me all of austin's secrets like <laughs> he keeps doing this thing and i just ooh, wish he no. wouldn't no we had these preliminary conversations and then in the moment it's you're kind of making adjustments and really letting them kind of get into it and especially i mean jayla completely floored me and I, I felt know. like in the in the scene with her and Jenna, I sort of knew from reading it, I knew that was going to be great. And I, I knew Jenna was going to bring it. But then it was in the moment, I was like, oh, man, we got like this kind of boxing match. Like they're each going toe to toe in the most gut-wrenching, heartfelt, depressing way. We hadn't seen that from Jayla to that extent yet in her character, but she had such an amazing reputation and she was so game and she was so excited to get shot and to, to have this episode and to, to get featured in this way. So I just was floored because we hadn't gotten to see her do that yet and exercise those muscles in that way. And I also really loved 
the character's perspective in all of this because I think she's kind of this audience surrogate to some extent where yeah. you're like, get over your trauma. You, you're like, like boomer ants. Like she's like, oh my God, I wanted to like, you know, she's like thinking he's like these boomers or whatever, but it's like, you know, but it's, it's, but it's, it's all from an honest place because like if any of these things actually happen to any of these characters, like, of course they're going to be hung up on it. And of course they're going to be emotionally scarred from it. And it is insanely difficult to get over some of the things that they've gotten over. And, and especially in recent history on the show where Dwight and Cherry lost her child, that's never going to go away as evidenced by, by June's character. And it's this sort of through line with her where she feels increasingly responsible for subsequent losses. And of course, if you're these characters from their perspective, they're living it and this weight and this trauma is living with them. But if you are this kind of younger, sheltered, not by your own choice, teenager who grew up in Padre in this environment, and like you don't have a worldly perspective, and all you see is these adults who are supposed to take care of you who are just so hung up on their own shit, and you don't recognize them as, as people and as individuals. Of course, you're going to be like, you're like, I don't give a shit about what you're <laughs> bitching about. You take the fucking bullet out of my side, if I can swearing. I don't know. I don't know how much you can swear. Have but it was just like, it's not like it was. Have a, you to ever me, listened was like to a, our show? I have, but I don't. I don't. I don't trying I, to clean that up. I swear casually sometimes, so I don't ever notice it if other people are swearing. Yeah, editors um, do that. It's strange. But yeah, so that idea of both being like from a real place where that character were coming from, but also kind of giving like an outside perspective or this sort of omnipresent audience perspective of like, yeah, I'm sure people have probably yelled at their television for any number of our characters to get over something at, at any given point in time. Uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> but uh, sure. I felt like Wes was yeah. kind of like that character at, at certain points that kind of like, what are you guys, what are you doing? Yeah, so like occasionally kind of outside you will see a perspective like coming into this yeah. core group and it's just what like, is all this. Yeah. Even when we were shooting, I think with Jack who played Jay early on in the episode and they're huddled behind that burnt out car and looking up and how he's playing Austin. It's like, well, we didn't call it the factory. Like, what did you call it? Sanctuary. And then I think, I don't know how much it's really living in there, but Jay gives this kind of like, that's a weird fucking thing to call a place. <laughs> like, like, kind of like, you know, breaking. Seems like the opposite. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't know. It's like, what? I don't know what you've been up to with whoever you've been hanging out with, but like, you guys got weird code names for shit that I don't understand. It's like, I just need some influence, man. <laughs> like, please help me. It's appropriate. Um, but yeah. I think that's what's fun about the show is when you can kind of bring in those new perspectives and get to kind of color this recurring cast in a new light. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've said that before, too. When we see moments like this or characters like these that can actually <laughs> shift the frame of the show in just their unique way, it gets the audience to also do the same for a little while because they're keyed in as much as possible to their emotions. And so when you get a character like that, pay attention because that's another perspective of another audience member, let's say even too. They're beautiful in that way, little <laughs> snowflakes. I just wanted to say last Christmas we had a charity drive and we asked Phil to donate and he did. And I bid on it. And then Phil, I bid on it for your prize. And <laughs> oh, now I feel even worse. No, no, no. This is, <laughs> how can you? This no. is amazing. So this is the box and he had Jayla, Jenna, Austin, and Christine sign it. And he signed it as well. This was the prize from the charity Christmas drive. I just want to thank you, Phil. This is awesome. Good. I owe you, you an so actual much. beer still. So. Uh, this, this is this <laughs> but, is plenty. Um, thank you. I try to make up for it. With, and now yeah. that we now we know why that is so significant. Because when did you get that signed? Was it around that time? I got it signed while we were shooting the episode. 
Uh, so, so but now it's now, even now more expensive. expensive. That it's yeah. like as long ago as that was, and it just took me forever to, to get it. In the oh, mail, I just but... figured you were waiting until you got closer to the episode, so it wouldn't be like yeah, a, that was it. A that spoiler exactly or something. You Phil, you had said to me it would be worth it, and. The chickens yeah. came home to roost, so I appreciate yeah. it very so thank much. You. Thank you, and thank you for donating to the drive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I recently had moved like across country and embraced sort of the remote workflow that the pandemic had brought on, and just been living in chaos for uh, however long. So, like, I'm glad that you wanted and that you appreciated, and especially Jenna didn't hesitate, and then I think she probably even addressed it directly to to you because she was like. She was like, oh, my God, of course. Your guys' reputation precedes you, I think, on the show community and the people. I mean, like that, you know, I think respect your guys' opinions a lot. And especially getting a couple of the messages that I got immediately after the episode aired, like it meant a lot because I do know how much you care about the show and this universe and how invested you are in it. And so I think that you take the good with the bad. and, And I think that we do as well. And we have high expectations for ourselves on the show. And we don't always necessarily hit our expectations for it. And it could be any number of things that caused it. I come to start thinking about any time that any television or film exists at all. It's kind of a miracle that that happened. Uh-huh. Um, I've been seeing that a lot lately, actually. So yeah. it's like, you come know, to think of it. there's so many departments and so many people. And, you know, there are times where we get lightning strikes within a certain radius and we have to shut production down for you know, oh yeah, right, hours right, because right. we can't film, and then they're like, "Are they going to be able to make that time up? Are they scrambling to figure out? Well, how are we going to tell the story with half a day less of production? You have to worry about like the light angles and because the daylight changes and all that oh, stuff. Yeah. To so it's, change yeah, so it's 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 a battle constantly. But that all goes to say that it's still all in the pursuit of telling a good story and, and making a good show. And and I think that knowing that there is this group of devoted fans out there who are as invested as you guys are means a lot and it makes the job feel that much more fun and that much cooler and you guys are very appreciated even when you hold us accountable and, and uh, yeah. let us yeah. know when we, uh, <laughs> yeah even when your charity holds you accountable <laughs> Phil, thank you guys for always all of the cast and the in the crew that interact with us and respond to our messages and just like you're saying that means a lot to you that we care so much it means a lot to us that you guys take the time out of what is they we know is your busy schedules even if it's just reply and say thank you or whatever that means a lot to me like when i see one of you guys pop up in my feed i'm like oh awesome who is it it never gets old and i, I want to thank you guys for that too that's part of the reason we are so invested is because you guys invest in us also yeah it's a trend amongst uh you fear the walking dead people True. It's true. <laughs> and it's appreciated too. I mean, it's a testament to the show going as long as it did and also why people yeah. don't leave when they get there. Because there's long hours. It's stressful, yeah. time intensive, especially pre-pandemic. I, I'm not working from home. I'm not home a lot. And especially people on set are away from families, away from kids. It's a big commitment. And I think to work with the crew that we got to work with, then you people don't want to leave because it's one thing to work those hours and work under those conditions. But if you work with assholes or you work with people who aren't considerate or you don't, you don't have that level of care for, uh, and you don't want to go to to battle for, it's almost like, why are you doing this job at all? It's like, if you're going to make the sacrifices that people make to work in the industry and and do that, you want to be with people that you care about and that care about you back. I've always felt that on the show and whether production or, or through our post department, so many people are still there from that have been there since the very beginning. One of our other editors 
Aaron St. Pierre started season one with me as the post-production assistant. And I brought her in season three to be my assistant editor just because I knew how great she was. And, and now she is one of the remaining editors on the show as we wrap up. That, that's people like that you build these relationships with that are they're like family to you. I understand if you can't answer this, and I'm only half joking when I say this too, but now that the show is over, are you going to move on to one of the other Walking Dead shows? I don't know. <laughs> Who knows with the strikes and, and all of that. I'm not working right now. I'm available. I don't think AMC wants to have any less Walking Dead on. They seem mm -hmm. to strategically fill their calendar year with different Walking Dead properties. So I wouldn't turn down anything to come back. And I did do Tales for the first season. Oh, uh, did you we, do all the we editing really enjoyed for that? that. I edited the episode with Jesse Devon. 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 My favorite episode, that actually. Was Dave's. <laughs> I, I did Devon yeah. and I did the Alpha episode okay. as well on that. I ed edited. When we were in offices, when that was more of a thing, we were all in the same offices and, you know, World Beyond's upstairs and Walking Dead's down the hall and we're interacting with everybody all the time. So I became awesome. great friends with everybody on all the other shows and still talk to some of the editors on Daryl and. Oh. Yeah, so we're all close, and once you're in that universe, it's you get really invested in it. It is can't just quit one big them. family. Yeah. What I wanted to ask you in closing: Are there any lessons that you learned along the way in your journey as an editor, also, but as a director as well? Something that just sticks with you that the audience should know about? The most fruitful creative experiences and collaborative experiences are always kind of when you lead with gratitude for the people who you're working with. Something that Michael Satrazimus does above all else is he really empowers everyone around him. He holds them accountable and it has a high expectations of them, but he also believes in them and they know he believes in them. That was really as sort of a mentor to me, something that I carried through and wanted to make sure that I was expressing that gratitude to all of these people at all levels for their contributions to it and knowing that you can't do everything yourself and it's only going to be better for embracing the creativity and the, the storytelling abilities of everyone around you, whether they're set deck or props or visual effects artists or the actors or stunts. They're incredible teams all around and they all are processing the story in the same way. And then really directing, you're kind of filtering all that through and trying to make it cohesive, but you're getting so many great options from all around you. Embracing that. And I think even to editing as well, just trying to make sure when you're working with the directors or when you're working with the producers and just keeping that positive energy, don't get bogged down and like you can't figure out a problem. It's like, well, there's like, there's going to be a solution. So like, let's focus on that. We know we can get it to something good. Let's just figure out how to get there, which is more of a broad life approach that really kind of helped inform it because you can get kind of in the weeds or worn out or burnt out doing this job. So I think having that perspective on things can be the sort of guiding beacon on top of a tower in a post-apocalyptic wasteland of Texas uh, yeah. <laughs> working in uh, you know TV and film. So, um, but it. yeah, it's, that's yeah. really been the biggest thing. And even when I've done alumni talks for my school or career stuff, and most of what I just tell people is just don't be a dick. And if you're just not Easier an said done. Yeah. <laughs> well, if, but if you're not an asshole, you can ask questions and people will answer them because you're not an asshole and they'll want to work with you again because the hours are long and hey, that guy was hard other. to work with. So I'd like to keep him around. The biggest thing I think is, you know, just trying to be a good person and being honest and accessible. And that's really, I think benefited me more. I mean, not that I'm a perfect person, but I, I think that I've at least duped enough people into thinking that I'm not a, a prick that uh, <laughs> I've, I've made a career out me of it. Me too. But... No, <laughs> but it's, it's like, it's, so it's, it's nourishing gratitude. It's, it's constantly feeding this, this gratitude that you're getting in return too. 
Yeah, I've always felt very appreciated on the show and very integral in a great way. However, you can reciprocate that and pass that on, whether it's even to your assistant editor and then trying to empower them and help them grow and move up. And I mentioned Aaron, but Kaylee as well. So I ended, the season ended, season eight ended, and it was me and two of my former assistants were the other two editors on the show, which for me personally felt great because it was these two people that I had helped mentor and helped bring up and brought in and and to see them evolve in that way and, and take on those challenges and do kick-ass jobs at it. Watching the episode before SJ's episode, I think Kaylee did such a phenomenal job with that episode. I was <laughs> yeah. so proud to see what she pulled off in that. And then you, it's fun because then you get jealous. You're like, man, I wish I would have, like, I would have cut that episode. I would have gotten to cut that sequence. And it makes you hungry too. So the yeah. tease to next week's, I'll say that uh, James Armstrong, who's one of our stunt coordinators, directed the next episode. And, get out. And, no uh, way. What? He is oh, such an amazingly talented, awesome guy. I got to co-edit the episode with Mike Miller, who was one of our assistants. I came back from shooting and we, we had to shuffle schedules. So I got immediately started co-editing on this episode. And I got to cut one of my favorite sequences that I've ever cut on the show in the upcoming right. episode. Wow. So, wow, this is crazy. So you yeah, guys can guess I what would never you watch it, but, but it's... Uh, <laughs> nice. Okay. It's, uh, I really love the next episode. <laughs> you might be receiving messages. But I think the only thing I want to ask in the, in the Fear of the Walking Dead realm is mainly getting into more how you feel as an audience member, but with your unique experience or perspective. What do you want to tell the audience, whatever way the wind blows with them? What do you want them to get out of Fear of the Walking Dead from your perspective? Oh, that's a great question. Finding these qualities in some of these characters that you can relate to and, and identify with and, and feel. I mean, the intent, obviously, I've, I've always felt with the show is just to, to put these people into such an extreme circumstance and to see how they react to it and how that affects their relationships and how that affects interactions and their their sort of worldview. But I think in watching it, just to, to find that relatability to some extent, whether it's one of them or, or multiple of them, and just latch onto it in that way, which I think that, I mean, I feel like you guys have obviously done. Hope feels like too sort of vague and, and kind of cheesy, but just identifying qualities in these characters that are either aspirational for an audience member or that you do see in yourself or you, you are more wishful in thinking about. They're so vulnerable and, and so accessible so much of the time in an apocalyptic setting. But that's the hope. It's just like you get drawn into it and you're engaged with it. And then you kind of feel like you're at least along for the ride, whether you've chosen kind of your, you know, your surrogate horse as it might be. The goal for me is just to be as kind of compelling and, and get the audience to invest as much as possible. And that's what I'm doing with every edit choice that I'm making and trying to really remain invisible, if that makes sense. And I know people say editing editors are invisible, artists are invisible at times. I don't want anybody thinking about my editing. I'm doing what I can to like pull people into the story, pull people into the characters. I'm choosing when I'm cutting in and out of shots based on that. How do I want to direct your eyeline or what kind of information am I trying to disseminate to you at this particular time or whether you're foreshadowing or just giving a new piece of the puzzle or right. hopefully we're, you know, we're telling compelling stories and you are invested and you are identifying with these characters. And if we're doing that, then I feel like we're succeeding. Even if you are invested enough to, to dislike it <laughs> and, <laughs> and to have that opinion on it. Maybe we want you to hate it. I you know, know, I did make that remark recently, actually. I swear, there's a couple of things this season. I'm like, they heard me. <laughs> <laughs> 
a year, like a year in the future, they heard me. (laughs) Let's talk about Toad Boy a little, at least. And uh, one of the things that I want you to convey is the elevator pitch for this short film, because having watched it, (laughs) it's actually kind of hard to just there's some easy things you can describe. How would you describe that to to an audience? What draws them in? I've had a hard time trying to really (laughs) get like a log line down. I've sort of settled on it's it's you know these two misguided siblings that are kind of showcasing the lengths that they will go for one another or in, in the case of this short the older sister for her younger brother and like the lengths that she's willing to go for him in the wake of some issues at school with bullies and things and he's absent and the principal's concerned and he's reaching out to the older sibling you know, figuring out how can I intervene how can I help and the help that he ends up providing just requires a very significant sacrifice that he is uh, maybe unaware of in the moment. but <laughs> That he wouldn't normally be willing to make. <laughs> yeah, but it really, I think, is about, for me, the principal in the short is sort of maybe more of the protagonist, and, and that's a little bit kind of a, like buried in it at first. And it's just about how terrifying kids are. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I think, you know, as a parent and a parent of I have a nine-year-old, a, a six-year-old, and a three-year-old, they've tried to perform ritualistic occult surgery on me many times. Um, but they, uh, it's really just feeling like wanting to be there for them and wanting to help them and kind of have answers for everything that they need and knowing that that's not possible, but also there's a, like a helplessness in parenting that is just sort of inherent to that role where you can only do so much and be so prepared and you're always going to be on your toes and your, things are always going to be changing. So kind of translating that to a short film where it's our principal character who's getting in way over his head and going off the rails very quickly. At its heart, I think that's what it's about. And then I also just wanted to do some cool practical makeup effects and, and find an excuse to, to do that. That was awesome. awesome. I shot that after I moved back to the Midwest and I met Dennis Preston, who did our makeup effects. I was like, oh, I can probably, I think I can actually pull off something with this kind of half human, half toad Cronenberg monster thing that I've had in my brain for a while. But even just... <laughs> the vibe and the tone of the mid- I grew up here okay and I lived in LA for 13 years and and I'm back now with our kids and there's just kind of this dissonance to the Midwest of eras it's like a clash of mid-century late mid-century houses and new construction but there's like some strip malls that are you know are relics of the late 90s and then like a mile down the road they built the new strip malls that were built five years ago. And and so it's like this clash of aesthetics and, and times and, and eras. And, and so it's it's not really a period piece, but I think it, I try to lean into the, like a nostalgic vibe with the tone and, and everything just so you felt that way. It felt like it was a little bit out of time and out of place, which is what I think living in the Midwest feels like. Uh, yeah, it was actually one of my questions. Does does Indiana somehow play into this, into this short film? Yeah. I mean, even, you know, like the, the school we shot in, was built in, I think, the early to mid-80s, and I don't yeah, think has been touched like since then. So it's like, you know, again, opening in that, it's like, well, where are we? We're listening to Willie Nelson. These lockers look like they're from another time. I think until you see the principal pull out his cell phone, there's no clear idea of, of what yeah. time it's in. And then I think really even beyond that, an exercise in how I can end up somewhere completely unexpected from where we start the journey feels organic and you end up there 
and it never felt like, oh shit, this A to B or B to C or C to D felt like a weird leap. But like when you get all the way to the end and you do think back to the beginning, you're like, how the fuck did it, like, I, I didn't feel that jump, the whole, like watching it, but like, how did I get here from where we started and feeling unexpected in that way? In part, I did the short, I mean, I wanted to, you know, do festivals with it and I wanted to work with the main actor who played the principal, but it, it's all kind of part of that effort to get to direct on fear is kind of proving that, you know, you're not a moron and you know where to point a camera and you've done the other things like I've shadowed and I've been an editor on the show forever. And, and so I have these votes of confidence, but I need to show that I'm capable of doing something. So then to go and make a short like Toad Boy, is this the right thing to be to be trying to get like work <laughs> off of? Like, a, is AMZ going to watch Toad Boy and be like, "Well, this is exactly the person we want to put in charge of this massive franchise for it's our next series, a huge episode." Fear the Walking Toad Boy. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like a kind of kind of this weird joke in a way, I guess, but. But I also like that too. I mean, I think there is like a dark humor to it, enough of a self-awareness to it. Hopefully that's conveyed that we're in on it a little bit. The right, instrument right. Oh, freaked yeah, that... me out. That was what really got me when I was watching it was that. <laughs> it's a crow. You don't have these things just like laying around your house? <laughs> I'm like... in school administration. <laughs> and so we have those in the classrooms. This hit a little too close to home for me, I feel like in that one. <laughs> <laughs> I was curious, are you an Evil Dead franchise fan because this... Oh, yeah. The Necronomicon. Necronomicon. But it's not. It's yeah. the Necromagica. Necromagica, yeah. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Right. So as soon as I saw it, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> that's that's the Necronomicon. Hold on, hold on a minute. No. We just watched Army of Darkness the other night. Yeah. Oh, I'm definitely a big fan of the Evil Dead franchise. And then also you have this like obsessive nonverbal kid who's really keyed in on this interest and in what happens if that kid gets access to some sort of dark magic and what does the evolution of that look like and where the, are those boundaries or sort of a sense of right and wrong or morality. And then for Charlene is sympathetic to her brother and, and trying to protect him and not make sure that he does anything that's going to harm himself unless, you know, they know that's a healthy level of experimentation in the process. So. Right. Long-term gain, <laughs> short-term. <laughs> right. Actually, that sort of answers a little bit one of my other questions, which is essentially, is there something that you wanted people to walk away with, with this short? And it sounds to me like you want pretty much, you know, where the line of morality is, it seems like, but is there anything else that in that realm or that you want people to walk away with after watching the short? Besides the flex on Filmcraft, which is top-notch, <laughs> I, re I really enjoyed the choice of shots too. And just the way things flowed, like you said, organically, it felt like this is where it's supposed to go. And yet here we are at the end of it. Uh, I don't know if I have a precise goal in that way, other than really wanting to try to tell sort of an unexpected story and exercise some of those demons, like this image of a human frog, human toad creature. And just, I think, still kind of play and experiment with, with some different characters that were, I'm, you know, I don't normally get to work with or see or like the, like working with the kids. And so it was really just kind of scratching all those itches or like trying to like check all those boxes where it's like, okay, I mean, I'm a huge horror genre fan. I tend to like some of the older movies or more methodical things and to do kind of a body horror piece and wanting to sort of find something in that space, but still feel like we're taking some strange swings and how can I make that all feel, like I said, organic or use what I've learned uh, in my years editing to effectively sell a tone and, and tell a story 
which is all by design. I think even in like that opening sequence with the fly stuff and it's like, I can tell a whole story just through sound design <laughs> and some really intentionally paced visuals and not have to worry too much about whether or not I'm going to get some CG flies and visual effects flies and all that kind of stuff. So I was wondering if you had like a fly wrangler or something on set. Oh, <laughs> no. we, had a, we had a bunch of fake plastic flies that we had around in, in case we were going to you know, have them land on anything. Some of those shots ended up getting cut, but then mostly that just gave them to the kids as like parting gifts they had. <laughs> and then Tamir, who played Todd, got, gave him a shirt that said, totally awesome on it. Oh, like a, yes. like a, like it was like a toad surfing in space or something. I'm not, That's, cute. Uh, That's cute. And then I gave him the instrument as well. And oh. uh, he wanted to keep the mat. He was so content to just kind of sit on set in his mask with the instrument in like a corner <laughs> and just kind of live the character. So I felt like we found the right kid for that. Yeah. <laughs> You find out later on that that's his life now. He just lives like that from oh, yeah, here no. on He's in. never left the basement of the house. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he lives there now. It's it. We, we footed the bill for the whole thing. Bullying sort of, it's like the entryway into you thinking you yep. know what this is about. But did you want to hit on that in any significant way at all? Other than acknowledging that it is a thing that kids are still dealing with, they're actively dealing with, or it won't go away. And kind of telling a little bit of what maybe that revenge story looks like. But I think even the bullies in this case, I don't know if like the ends just, you know, or like if, if it's completely like justice has been served, so to speak. Question mark. Yeah. But the, uh, again, that, I mean, that maybe caters more to, towards the, the morality angle of it than the bullying story necessarily. But yeah, I think it was just kind of an interesting way to enter into the story of these kids and kind of give enough context for their perspective and for their state of mind coming into it without having to do a lot of exposition. I think it's very relatable to, right, to, right. to kind of come in on that. And that, with the short specifically, I mean, there's it's like the economy of time that you have to tell a story and, you know, wanting to cover as much ground as we did I mean, moving through locations and trying to still keep it down and, and tight. It's like anytime you can maximize an element like that and it's like, okay, well, we, we have something relatable and we can get the audience hooked on that. And then we don't have to, you know, spend a bunch of time seeing a montage or flashback of him getting bullied or something like that. I think it's like, okay, well, we, we can set this up and everybody will know right away enough information to buy in. There's sort of an irony to it too, because in a way, everybody knows what that's about. It's normal, quote unquote, and yet it shouldn't be. I feel like in in a sense, because of the twist and because of how it kind of gets turned on its head, you're kind of almost conveying that, that mm, no, this isn't normal. And here's something else that's yeah. not normal. See, I walked away with that. That's good to hear though. We've gotten some feedback or reviews on Letterboxd and stuff, and it's been interesting to see what different people key in on or what the takeaways are. And then somebody did write one that was pretty bullying focused and like, it was you know, mm. an interesting take on, on bullying. It's like a, yeah. putting it lightly, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of being able to see it, are there any concrete ways that one can see it in, in the near future, places that it's going to play and hopefully other venues where it might appear in the future that you can maybe share with us? It was up through the FilmQuest's virtual program. I believe they use like the EO app. It's a festival app where you can purchase and watch. It may be down now that the festival just ended, and I don't know what the term was. But we are going to be at 
a couple of upcoming festivals with a few more that we haven't heard back from or aren't able to announce just yet. This month, we're going to be abroad in Wales at Abertoir, which is a, a big international genre festival, and the Soho Horror Festival in the UK. And then in early December, we're going to be at the New York City Horror Film Festival. Cool. I believe that's December 7th through 10th or something like that. And I think we screen on the 8th. Hopefully a few more coming up in the spring. And then I will definitely get it out there once the festival runs done. And we'll keep in touch. Have it up. <laughs> yeah. No, I'll let you know when it's it's going to officially be up. And uh, I'm not great about updating it, but there is a toadboyfilm.com. I have some of the festival stuff up there and shorts is the uh, Instagram handle is the word shorts with the word horror inserted into it. What I've been posting most of the Toad Boy stuff. And when we've been nominated for awards, we won best short script or best writing for a short at the Knoxville Horror Film Festival. We played at Toronto After Dark and Telluride Horror Show and a few other ones earlier in the month that were really surprising to get into because they're at some of the bigger horror and genre film fests in the country. And again, all like icing because I think getting to direct on the show was the biggest reward from it. And then now it's like, oh, and now I get to have some you know fun playing in festivals and meeting other cool filmmakers and networking in that way. It's been cool that it's had like this life beyond just the initial intention and, and to get it out there and that people are responding to it. I think that's what's been more surprising is that there are more people that are as messed up as I am. <laughs> yeah. My exact response was, that was so fucked up. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> the teeth falling out of the frog side like, of the mouth. That was so gross. Oh, yeah. It's so good. <laughs> Who knew you could just buy a set of teeth on Amazon for like seven dollars? When you showed this from the side and you could see the frog eyeball like all bulging out, I was like, "Oh, that was gross." <laughs> and we did do. I think it's still up. So I help out with a lit magazine and trade imprint, Dark Matter Magazine is the name of the magazine and it's all short genre fiction dark sci-fi and horror and then we have dark matter inc which is a trade imprint where we release novellas novels anthologies stuff like that and we did a artist feature on the makeup effects artist who did toad boy and featured a lot of the process of making the prosthetics in toad boy so it's very spoiler filled obviously for people who haven't seen it but it's also just some of the coolest elements of the short so it feels like putting it out there is worth checking out if you're into that kind of stuff i believe it's darkmattermagazine.shop will or darkmattermagazine.com will both take you to the magazine and i think it's free to read online it's, it's cool to highlight some of that stuff and, and he's been nominated for a handful of makeup effects awards and stuff for the short oh that's awesome that's been cool to see yeah there's a lot to like about this short actually <laughs> <laughs> really just, no, just well, thank you guys for watching level. it and checking it out and thank you for it sharing really it with us yeah really thank you for sharing yeah, yeah, so we can gab with you on this. Uh, for, <laughs> I wish we, I mean, I wish we had longer to even talk about this, but yeah, I mean, it's a short. There's only so much we can say. I mean, yeah. it's kind of the way you almost designed it. Yeah. Is that, yeah. What is there to say? Well, you know, there was, the initial Rest. cut was a little bit longer. What I would qualify as masturbatory. <laughs> You're like, like, let's pull back like an that editor here. really feeling his shit and just living in a sequence way too long. It's like, how long does he need to say Charlene in a basement before we understand <laughs> that she's not going to show up? Uh, so, but which is also beneficial in just growing and evolving and, and refining and stuff. I would 
definitely have cut down the script before I shot it if I were doing it again. Let's think about this ahead of time. You're shooting an out-of-pocket short and trying to do it in as few days as possible. Maybe this office scene doesn't need to be these couple extra pages longer than it than it you know ends up being in the final right, cut. Right. Because now I watch it and I'm like, I don't even remember what I cut out of cut out of it because it's like it all feels <laughs> essential and, and yeah yeah mm-hmm. so. Well, I mean, after the festivals, you can just release the editor's cut, and put it all back in there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know for if VIPs. Yeah, I don't know if there's a huge market for that, but uh, <laughs> release yeah. the fill cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't need a, my Zack Snyder following. <laughs> so everybody knows by the end of this, if you want the full and unedited version, the fill cut of this episode, you can head over to ko-fi.com/squawkingdead or patreon.com/squawkingdead because that's available to those who tip us and those who join a membership tier for as little as a dollar a month because. Who doesn't want more Phil and less of me? But <laughs> thank you again for joining us. And uh, hopefully your kid gets over that cough soon. Aww. He's fine. <laughs> He'll survive. I'm sure that he didn't even ask his brother or my wife. As it's like it's sitting on the counter up there already put out with foresight. Like this is going to happen. I'll make this as easy as possible. I know he didn't look. I know he just came down. It's what having a six-year-old is like. What is? Just, yeah. They're all really... Really great kids, and Chuck is really into horror and has probably watched things that he shouldn't have watched. Um, well, you guys did the cult masks for during the pandemic. I, I just saw that recently today. The onk mask sort of situation. Oh, yeah. When we were pregnant with Faye, or my wife was pregnant, rather, she did the heavy lifting there. Um, <laughs> when we announced that we were having a third kid, I made a, an announcement video, and it's my kids reading a Latin version of Mother Goose, Rockabye Baby. <laughs> and there's like a, they're wearing these cult masks with like a weird pacifier symbol on them, chanting. That's what it was. And I walk out and there's like the TVs flickering and they've set up these weird lights and they're just chanting and laughing. And we hear like my wife scream from the other room and I run in and then her stomach is inflating with a baby. And she refused to be on camera. So for good reason. So it's like I had to split screen myself and I reversed a balloon deflating and under my shirt, but just in the, just a stomach in the foreground. So that might say, that might be up online. That's, uh, that's called the sibling two because we did an initial sibling one for our other son. But yeah, so now the oldest one watches all the conjuring movies and all mm. the it movies. And, and I don't know why he's interested in those things at all. Yeah. Uh, you it's know. anyone's guess. <laughs> I think having an editor dad and like him being interested in me showing him as I'm building things or seeing kind of the make-believe of it, there's a, a healthy sort of understanding of the separation of reality and make-believe right, and right, the craft right. yeah. of it. So he's now, it's like, it's like disassoci- disassociated from his reality where it's mm. like, oh, like, yeah, there's just a scary thing happening or whatever. How do they do that? That's just cool. That's not a real walker. It's just a guy in a mask. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Eating Cheetos. Specifically, <laughs> our like uh, in season seven, our walker who's entangled in the shopping cart in seven hundred two. In between takes to shield him from the sun, they're bringing in like the most colorful rainbow umbrella and like <laughs> holding it over him. And you just get to like watch the, the dailies after cut, and you see like, oh yeah, there's just he's just like chatting it up or, or being on set. The walkers are all like having coffee and smoking a cigarette or skateboarding or you know. Uh, 
This is a weird job to have. (laughs) Let's normalize this. (laughs) I don't think I said anything that's going to get me in trouble. Hopefully. I can't think of any. I mean, I think they gave it away on the after show vignette, which I was very grateful they didn't use anything that they interviewed me on. I think I'm in there, like in some of the B-roll and talking about rebuilding the sanctuary and recreating it. It's like, I don't think they care if people know that's like, this isn't the same exact set, but it's even more impressive that it's not because of how close they really got it. Recreating that was a massive undertaking. Endeavor. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and they pulled it off. So I think they've, they've already said, and if people thought, oh, yeah, they did. AMC is really good about spoiling their own stuff. So don't worry. (laughs) Yeah, well, mostly think, character reveals, but that's, yeah, that's the you know I think they're just trying to get ahead of the audience spoiling it maybe, but not that it's the right call. But they've been doing that increasingly on shows for the like even not AMC. I remember working on Parenthood on NBC, and we had like a, an episode that ended with a marriage proposal as a cliffhanger, and literally it was like next week on Parenthood. Yes. It was like the answer to the question. I was like, all right, well, I guess that doesn't matter that it was like the point of the episode was, is she going to say yes? She has a lot of reasons to say either thing. So we don't know. And it's like, no, the NBC promo was like. And it's not even yes and. It's, like, it's just yeah. yes. And all the wonderful things that happen afterwards. Yeah. Great. So I, think, I think they're just like, oh, somebody's going to figure it out eventually. We're just going to put it out there. There's no like theater to distribution anymore i think it's just either people are going to watch it because they like it or they're not maybe we'll get more eyeballs if we tell them that daniel sherman's back but for the people who are invested who don't want things spoiled for them that reveal would have been a hundred times cooler if you did not know it was coming that's where it's like short short changed you know yeah it might be a generational thing i think too where we were used to having that cliffhanger and waiting but maybe in a world where nobody wants commercials because they're like what is this because I didn't grow up on this and having to wait week to week and not binge shows all at once. It, it, it's, they just can't handle it. And also in a dwindling cable audience demographic, you have to try to get in as many people as possible. So it's hard to justify making them wait. We, we've talked about this a lot over the years too, and how there's a difference in the way we watch shows. And, and we've seen it in the universe, in the walking dead universe too, how things are, are boarded, even feel different. There was like a shift in telling stories, not keeping in mind the commercials. It feels like more shows from in the last few years have been more geared towards long-term viewing, catering this now for an audience that's going to end up streaming these shows later on, rather than timing our emotional breaks for the commercials. Yeah, it's like sell, <laughs> and, selling a car or selling, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. It's a whole thing. <laughs> but th- again, thank you so much for, for being on with us, and I, I hope thank we get to do so. this again soon, too. Yeah. You yeah. know, in, in another venue, in another film. So we can follow you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. Hopefully my monotone tangents aren't super boring and, you know, it's a good sleep aid. Everybody can, like, I, you know. Oh, stop. I'm pretty sure after they see Toad Boy, they'll welcome <laughs> your exposition. So. We'll just pair the scenes next <laughs> be really ex- Anyway, we'll take care of everybody watching this right now, and uh, we'll see you with another interview or episode breakdown, and hopefully we get to see and talk about Phil more in the future. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the goal, everybody right? enjoyed Sanctuary, and definitely stick around for the, the last few episodes. Yeah. Three more to go. Yeah. <sighs> Three more to go. Exhale. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. I'm looking yeah. out for next week, one of my favorite sequences. Oh, we're going to be watching. Coming up. 
James Armstrong the third directing. I think I, I think he's the third, right? He's the third. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I actually don't know, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what his, his dad's name was or his. Yeah, he was also a stunt guy too. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, like I I got a pretty sweet hat. He gave me. It says Armstrong Action on it. It's like the action company. Again, another great guy. Super talented. Super generous. Really, too, like really you. glad that uh, my episode came before his, so I don't have to follow him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's just coming out one after the other. <laughs> Deny you. It's crazy. It's really, it's really great. The one thing I kind of wanted to see near the end is take chances. Let's let's introduce more ideas and, and perspectives and input and spice and flavor. And then more than anything else, let the show go off with a bang. Let's see what we can do with all this. So um, I, th- I think it was the right call. Can't wait to hear what you guys think about them too. Me right. too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how it's going to turn out, but uh, but I, I already know that. <laughs> what did I say? What did I say? The first thing I said was, "What an unbelievable episode!" And, and Sharon he was like, "But unbelievable, good or bad?" And I just like left it. I just said, <laughs> "I said ha 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 ha." She's like, "No, I still don't know what you mean by that." <laughs> For the record, good. I'd like to make that clear. Take care, everybody. Have a good night, and we'll see you in another one.